It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined right now by a woman who is running for governor of Virginia, and we are in the home stretch. Jennifer Carroll Foy, thank you so much for being here this morning. Oh my gosh, thank you, Jess and Zerlina. I'm excited to be here. Good morning. Always good. Morning. Always happy to talk to you. It's been it's been a minute since we've had you on. Um, can you give us just a state of the race? What what should what should people know as we're we're getting pretty close to that primary date? So how how is it all going? Absolutely. So it's going exceptionally well. We are literally less than three weeks from having the most one of the most historic elections in Virginia's history. And, you know, it's exciting because, you know, 2020 was exhausting. Um, We had a lot on the line and we pushed through and made it happen. But I have to tell you that, you know, voters and Virginians are just coming up from air. They're getting their second shot. You know, we're getting to somewhat of a new normal. And now people are, are turning and tuning into the race. And it's right at the right moment because we're gaining the momentum. We're mobilizing our supporters. And we're going to build the most diverse coalition of voters Virginia's ever seen. So it's really exciting. And we're right there. I can feel the energy. And we're going to make it happen on June 8th. So what's what's changed since the last time we spoke to you is that there is a Republican um, whose name we know mm-hmm. now <laughs> who is in the race. Um, and it feels to me like. You know, when you don't have when you don't know who the opponent is and you're in a Democratic primary, sometimes um, you know, you're not sure what the what the shape of the race in the general um, will take and the, the uh, predictable attacks um, from one side of the other. Um, we now know that the GOP candidate is Glenn Youngkin. Um, so speak to why you think you um, as the Democratic nominee are better suited to compete against um, who we now know is the GOP nominee, Glenn Youngkin. Absolutely. So the packaging may be different, uh, but it's still more of the same. I mean, Glenn Youngkin is just as Trumpy as Trump. So, you know, it's all about <laughs> who can out-Trump each other on the Republican side. And, you know, I'm here to say that Virginia, we're, we're going to reject that just like we have in the past. We're not here for the bigotry, the xenophobia, the homophobia, the racism. Uh, hate has no home in Virginia. And, you know, with this new wave of Democratic leadership that's flooded over our Commonwealth, and I'm excited to be a part of that, you know, we stood up in a huge way to make that very clear with one resounding voice. And so the way that I'm going to beat the Republicans in November is I'm going to out-mobilize and out-inspire them. And that's what we're going to have to do, because he can write himself a $30 million check and fully fund his Republican race. Um, but it's really about votes and who can get more people to the polls. You can't buy elections. You can't pay for passion. And it's really about who's going to make a woman want to stand in line for two hours in the rain to cast her ballot. And we'll, it will be for a historic Jennifer Carroll Foy administration. I, I feel like I've read a, a bunch about how, like, oh, this is terrible because Glenn Youngkin is is a millionaire. He can finance his own campaign. And this is going to be so hard for Terry McAuliffe to run against him because Terry McAuliffe is also a millionaire. And 
he's very well defined and it's you know it, this is this is a bad matchup for democrats and it's like we haven't we haven't had a primary yet and and there's other candidates in the race who are doing really really well um can you talk a little bit about fighting the media on on the attention, just the attention deficit? That maybe I'm obsessed with this because I'm sitting in New York City, where a similar dynamic is playing out among the mayoral candidates. That like we got some flawed guys running, we have some amazing women running, and they just don't get the same ink that the guys do, even though they're running perfect campaigns. Do do you feel that set? Like does that frustrate you the way it frustrates me as an observer, or are you just like, no, I am riding the high of talking to voters every day, and I could care less what the newspapers are doing? Uh, well, listen, Jess, you better make it plain because that is exactly what it is, and it's it's exactly <laughs> what's happening. It doesn't matter that I have the endorsement of Emily's List, um, Working Families Party, Sunrise, you know, movement. We have over fifteen union endorsements the hundreds of thousands of people who represent working families uh, who are supporting my campaign more than any other gubernatorial candidate in this race. It's like none of those things matter that I've been doing the good work as a public <laughs> defender, as a foster mom, as a community organizer, and a state legislator, being one of the most effective legislators in Virginia's history, passing the Equal Rights Amendment for Women's Equality, and you know, diversifying our teacher workforce, reducing the black maternal mortality rate. Like all of these things, you know, it's, it's it's, it's offensive that they try to undermine my experience and question my credentials because at the end of the day, these social structures aren't meant for people like me. A woman of color with two young kids who came from one of the poorest communities in all of Virginia. And so I already went into this knowing that I'm going to have to outwork everyone else. That's just the experience that we have as women. But at the end of the day, you know, oftentimes the media, you know, they want to go for what is conventional, what's normal. But I'm going to tell you that it is going to be a failure on our part because voters aren't going to show up to vote two liked, you know, male, wealthy millionaires at the top of the ticket. We've seen that story. We've seen how that plays out. And it's left so many Virginians behind. That's why we need a new leader with a clear vision and bold ideas to move Virginia forward. Do you get the sense that people are ready to go like turn away from you know a governor i mean terry mccullough was a good governor in virginia no no shade um but mm-hmm. he already ha- he already had the job and it, we i think we ask you this question every time we talk but it's like why do do you think people are really getting the argument that he already had the job and and there's the chance to make history in this moment don't you want to be a part of that as a voter, as somebody who cares about the future of the country and representation? Um, and I guess that's my question for voters, but also for you in terms of your continuing message to those voters who might be like, well, you know, Governor McAuliffe was good. The economy was good. He did some good things that I liked. Um, and just your closing message to those folks who might still be on the fence. Mm-hmm. The closing message is that, you know, you can have our, we can have our first black woman governor in the history of our country, that women, especially women of color, are electable if you vote for us. And so it's as simple as that. And I can tell you that women and women of color running, we are the exception and not the rule. However, when you have competent, qualified, you know, people running for office who will stand shoulder to shoulder with the people and not special interests, who's a proven record of fighting for people to bring diverse high-paying jobs to the Commonwealth, getting shots in arms, fighting for justice, 
um, and police reform, that's what's important. And so I have to say that representation does matter. But I'm not only coming to this through the lens of a black woman, but also, you know, a working mom with two, three-year-olds and having the same struggles as most Virginia families of when COVID hit, having to sit at a dining room table with my husband and prioritize which bills we get paid this month. That matters, that people see themselves in me and in this race. The fact that I'm well-equipped and well-prepared, I am the only gubernatorial candidate who has a way to raise $8 billion in new revenue over the next 10 years. And if people go to my website at jennifercarolfoy.com, you'll see that. That's how prepared I am. I'm not here to sell pipe dreams. I'm here to sell policies and plans and tell you what I'm going to do because the people in my district that I represented well will tell you that promises made, promises kept. And Jennifer Carol Foy always keeps her promises. I just need the people with me so we can make it happen on June 8th. I love that. <laughs> That's a great closing <laughs> message. <laughs> it's really good. Mike, drop. Like, I'm sitting here like, 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 where's the lie? Like, like, put a <laughs> hole in that. Go for it. Like, okay, I, I do want to drill down on, on one particular issue because you, you are a former public defender, which, which is also lived experience that does not often wind up in government and, and is very, very important, especially in this moment. So since we last talked, you have been working with the father of Donovan Lynch, who was the young man who was shot and killed by police in March. Um, you're working with him on a proposal to implement civilian review boards. Um, you're calling on the DOJ to investigate police killing. I, how has that issue affected the race, given your background as a public defender? I can tell you that the pendulum has swung. You know, I have been fighting the good fight, standing up for black, brown, and poor Virginians uh, for a very long time as a public defender. I tell people, when I tell you I'm a public defender, I'm not telling you what I do. I'm telling you who I am. I am a person who's willing to be underpaid and overworked to fight and protect people's constitutional rights. I've had clients come to me beaten and bloodied and bruised after they've been in police custody, but unfortunately there were no cameras at the time. No one had the, you know, thinking to say, let me cut on my, my cell phone camera. So while some of these atrocities are now being videotaped for all of us to see, we have to be clear, it's been going on since the beginning. And so we have to have people who've been on the right side of these issues, who intimately understand, you know, where the relics of Jim Crow are, the draconian laws that we have, the ones that have disparate impact on black, brown, in marginalized communities and who will uplift those communities by making investments in them, more money for at-risk schools, addressing child poverty, which is unjust, immoral, and violent. I mean, all of these things have to be tackled in a real systemic intersectional way. And I'm ready to do the good work because unfortunately politicians of the past have put band-aids on our issues, getting us from one crisis to the next. But until we really get in there and address police violence as the issue that it is and have real prevention and accountability so we can end the killing of black and brown people on our streets due to racial injustice, then we will continue to have these conversations 10, 20, 30 years from now. So I'm ready to go to work. I knew we had a problem when, you know, we could watch a person lose his life for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Um, and we didn't have robust, substantive, systemic change across this country. But that's why we need bold new leadership in order to make it happen. It also seems like the civilian review board concept is one we should talk about more. I mean, we talk a lot about qualified immunity. We talk a lot about 
um, the fact that we would want district attorneys, um, particularly the ones that we elect to be more um, progressive on issues of um, police use of force. And unfortunately, what happens is, I mean, this just happened this week in North Carolina, the neighboring state, um, where the prosecutor comes out and He's like, the, the shooting is completely justified. Here's a baby piece of the video. <laughs> Not the whole thing, just a little clip. We're just going to give you a little piece and say it, it's fine. And then we're going to go back inside. And I'm reminded of the fact that, like, you know, in these smaller localities, especially, the prosecutors and the police work hand in hand on cases to prosecute crime, um, to quote Law and Order. <laughs> um, but the civilian <laughs> review board concept, that idea is to take sort of that review process out of the hands of prosecutors who have to work alongside the police. How do we, how do we communicate or how do you think that message should be communicated? So people realize that that's actually a part of the quote unquote defund the police conversation, just reimagining how these systems work when police use of force cases happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I can tell you I've worked on uh, excessive use of force cases. I've, seen these things up close and personal. And I always try to tell people and make the argument that, you know, when is transparency and accountability a bad thing, right? And sunlight is the best disinfectant. And so if you are, you know, retracting certain information, only providing what you want the public to see, then the question has to be asked, why is that, right? And so people, the taxpayers, the public, we're entitled to answers. Um, Because let's be clear, no one is above or below the law. And so I want to make that clear. I make that clear in the courthouse, you know, every day. And I made that clear in the state house, you know, hoping to pass a bill to ban no-knock warrants, passing my bill to prohibit the use of chokeholds by law enforcement officers. But then, like you said, you know, going farther and ensuring that we have civilian review boards that apply to every jurisdiction, including sheriff's offices. They have subpoena power. They can delve down consequences. But also under a Jennifer Kale Foy administration, I will have an attorney general's office that investigates every single complaint of excessive force and any officer-related killing, um, because that's what we need to have. You don't want the appearance of impropriety. And so you want people to have faith and confidence in our not legal system, but justice system, but you have to operate in a fashion where that makes sense. There's a, another angle of, of your biography that I, I, I want to get into a little bit because it's a perspective that we literally never hear from, which is you as a foster mom. We are talking a lot about the care economy, finally, which is a wonderful thing. But can, can, you, can you just talk about what it means that we're finally focusing on childcare and elder care and the rest of it as, as necessary infrastructure from your perspective fostering children? Because I just don't, I don't think that that's something that we, we ever really get to hear in our national public discourse. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Jess. We, we don't. And oftentimes the jobs and duties and domestic work that women do, we're in charge of or get paid for, it's been relegated to the sidelines. It's been underpaid, underprotected. Um, it's really because we didn't have a voice. But when you start having more women in leadership positions saying, listen, I, you know, I'm a stay-at-home mom or I take care of my kids and I feel like all women should uh, be entitled to, you know, uplifted pay and protections and everything else, especially our foster kids, especially our traumatized, abused, and neglected amongst us. There's a saying, show me how you treat the least amongst you, and I'll show you who you really are. 
And in Virginia, we have a lot of work to do because once we get our kids in foster care, we keep them. And we know the age-out statistics are awful with teen pregnancy and drug abuse and unemployment. Um, and so making sure that we provide wraparound services. If that child has been removed because of parents on drugs, to give the parent treatment and fix the problem. Don't just remove the child from the home and disconnecting them from their family, right? That's what makes sense. Thinking about care in a holistic fashion. And that's what, you know, I've been fighting to do. I've passed bills to expand uh, what kinship care is. So now a teacher or a church member or a neighbor can now be your foster parent and get a stipend and Medicaid for that foster child. That's what we have to do. Pass the bill to allow. Oh my God, that makes so much sense. <laughs> too much sense, right? And then having a foster child being able to go to their home school to the age of 21 and get their high school diploma. Because we know every time that child is moved, they're re-traumatized. And now that's a grade that they've fallen back. So giving them every opportunity to be transported to a high school to get their high school diploma is the least we can do. Those are common six pragmatic policies that I've put in place as a delegate and a legislator, and I'll do even more, you know, as a governor. I love it when policy in the, makes in the, sense. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think so. Also, not something <laughs> I'd heard of before. Like, I think I think it, it, it takes the lived experience of, of doing that to be like, here is how we can fix this. I know I've been there. Watch. <laughs> it's just, mm-hmm. it, it's not about making a pretty picture with representation. It's about getting better outcomes from policy. Okay, so in the, in the final uh, couple minutes that we have with you, um, how can people help? Where, where can they go? What can they do? That is my favorite question. What can you do for me? So one of the things that we need is we need everyone to know it's an all hands on deck moment, right? We have this amazing pivotal election coming up quickly on June 8th, but early voting has already started. So you can go to IWillVote.com. That's IWillVote.com if you live in Virginia and find your early voting polling location. And of course, I'm here to say I've been standing with and up for Virginians all of my life, and my ask is for you to stand with me. If we want to preserve our majority and win in November, if we want to continue to combat climate change, have affordable housing, um, make health care more affordable for more people, and really pay teachers $60,000 a year what they deserve, um, then we have to have a governor who's willing to make good on her promises. And you won't get that from politicians of the past um, and recycling those same policies and ideas and people. So now is our time. So please go to jennifercarolfoy.com. Please sign up to volunteer, whether it's text messaging, phone banking, uh, postcard writing. If you don't live in Virginia, every little thing helps. And of course, if you want to throw money at me, I will take it and I will use it and I will appreciate it because campaigns cost. We have to get the mask and PPE for our 2,000 volunteers we have all throughout Virginia and to aggressively stay up on TV to share our positive vision for the Commonwealth. Jennifer Carol Foy, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We wish you the best of luck in the uh, in the final stretch here. Yes. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. Please follow us on Twitter at Zerlina Maxwell, at Jess underscore MC, and at Signal Boost Show. 